if your business isn't getting traction and you're not making enough money to live on and be happy after a thousand days, you need to move on. You need to figure something else out. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. If you're anything like me, this is a reflective time of year. I am less on the emails, not doing any company stuff, and more thinking about what we're going to be doing for the next year. A lot of my biggest breakthroughs historically have happened during this week. And I can't think of a better interview to play during this time because it's fundamentally about setting your target for the new year and achieving it. And that's what today's guest did. They put a number an eight-figure number on their refrigerator, and they achieved it. And they're here to talk about the story. And as we listen to how they approach it very systematically with clear vision, maybe we can think about how we're going to get to our goal next year. Today's guests are two of my very favorite people in the world, Carrie and David McKeegan. They are the founders of Greenback Expat Tax Services, which helps expats in a simple way file their U.S. taxes They also started, but didn't sell. They sold the greenback business. They did not sell Clear.Tax, which is a business they started on the side and has turned into an amazing business in its own right with a completely different customer base. That helps entrepreneurs who own companies file their taxes in the US. So entrepreneurs from around the world who own US companies, Clear.Tax helps them file their business taxes in the US. Completely different addressable market. But look at this. They sold the big one, and now they're keeping this upstart, huge potential clear.tax. What a cool story. We're going to dig into how they did it, how they put that number on the refrigerator, and how they achieved it. And we revisited this idea of the 1,000-day principle. Actually, I stole the 1,000-day principle from David McKeegan. I'm just going to mea culpa up front. I go back to the source of the principle. I ask him, how would he update it today? What does the 3,000-day principle look like and beyond? Also, we dig into their greatest life achievement, which is how they parent an amazing family while doing all this business stuff and traveling the world at the same time. It's going to be a great episode. It's going to be inspiring. Let's roll it right now. Dave, you were the one that brought me the 1,000-day principle along with a beautiful <laughs> carving of the Tropical MBA HQ <laughs> Villa, um, a Balinese carving that we put on top of our old Tropical MBA Villa back in 2012. And you said to me, the thousand day principle, I always remembered that, talked about it ever since. And since that time, we've had all these riffs about it. And one is this concept of the 3000 day principle. And the 3000 day principle is sort of like, we're seeing these kind of wealth events happen around 3000 days for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if you agree with that. Is the life-changing money coming at like a nine-year sort of time frame? Is there any accuracy to that or some nuances to like different time frames around that that you guys have perspectives on? I don't know if you remember this story. I, I told it to you and Ian years ago, but September 
1997. I was standing at the train platform in Scarborough Station, New York, wearing a suit and tie on my way to my first official day of work as like an adult. Yeah, I graduated college earlier and I was getting ready to go into my first day of work. And I see one of my friend's dads on the platform and I walk over to say hello. And uh, he looks at me and he smiles and he says, oh, you know, is today your first day of work? And I say, yeah. He says, well, you only have 10,000 more. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I was like, yeah, there's about 250 work days in a year, 40 year career. So you've got 10,000 days of work. So when you go home today, you can cross off one. You can extrapolate some of these things and you make rules of thumb or heuristics around them. And so if you say there's 10,000 days in a career, and what we've seen is it takes people about a thousand days to take a business from zero to replacing their income. And now what we're starting to see is around that 3,000 day mark, people are exiting them for enough money where they either have FU money or they're just free. They don't have to work anymore at all, right? But some of these numbers, like they get thrown around in the corporate world as well, right? You know, the thousand day principle, when I first heard that, it was in reference to jobs. And it was if you're not getting promoted and getting your compensation adjusted pretty dramatically every thousand days, then you're doing something wrong and you need to go find a different job. And so for the entrepreneur, the equivalent is if your business isn't getting traction and you're not making enough money to live on and be happy after a thousand days, you need to move on. You need to figure something else out. And then I think it flows from that that after a thousand, after 3,000 days, you know, after that seven, 10 year kind of range, you're probably, if you're creative, if you're an entrepreneur, you're probably going to want to do something else. You're probably going to be thinking, well, I've been doing this for a while. What's my next opportunity? If you've been making money that whole time, you're probably in a situation where you can do something else and selling the business to go do something else is sort of the icing on the cake. But it's not just entrepreneurship. You can see this in some industries as well. I've got a brother-in-law who worked for the city of New York. He's retired now. But after 20 years, he retired with a full pension. So that's like a 5,000-day plan, right? You only put in 20 years, and now you got a full pension that you can live on for the rest of your life. But I think the difference is for entrepreneurs, the return can be exponential, right? You know, you're not talking about 80% of your last year's salary for the rest of your life, you're talking about having that pile of money that could last forever. I think that's always been the challenge. And I think the appeal of the principle is attempting to take some of the clarity that other professions enjoy and, and apply it to what the bootstrap path looks like. And I think you've successfully done that with the thousand day principle. And now this sort of 10 year career idea, this 3000 day mark where it does seem like if you got to the level of traction where you replace your income, you have a team in place, and then it's not exitable in three times that amount, it does seem like a good moment to reflect and to retool. And the thing is, the lifestyle design, which I guess is where we all kind of started out, right? You, you know, reached like, into the bucket of concepts there pretty <laughs> You had to dust that one off. <laughs> lifestyle design, anybody? Do you remember this one? <laughs> is it 2010 again? What just happened? <laughs> That's kind of where we all started out with some of this stuff is like, well, how do I design my life? How do I make sure that I live a life that I want to live? And part of that 
for all of us was saying goodbye to the jobs we had. Carrie and I both had great jobs in London that we said goodbye to to start a business. And that enabled us to move to Bali and Argentina and Spain and all over the place. And you're making decisions to open up new avenues and take new risks and new adventures when you do these things. And I think a lot of it comes from sitting down and having the conversation and thinking about it and really deciding what you want to do. And I think sometimes people gloss over that and they say, oh, I'm just going to start a business and make a bunch of money. But you sort of need that why in order to get through some of the darker times as an entrepreneur. The other day, we were talking about sort of this concept of when you're until a certain point, you have to work, right? So you have to pay bills, you have to do all these things. And then you move into the point where once you're not worried about the financial side of things, you get to work. You have the opportunity to do work that you're excited about. And I think that shift mentally is really exciting. The idea of thinking about the next chapter of anything that you can do entrepreneurial-wise or anything else that we want to do, being like, I get to do this versus have to do this is really powerful. I love that. I'd like you guys to bring me to the number on the fridge and talk about how this concept originated and how it originally came about. So we'd been running the business for a number of years. And, you know, you always have in the back of the mind that, oh, at some point, maybe I'll sell, that kind of thing. And we started having more conversations about that. And one of the issues that kept coming up is we didn't really know how much we would need to sell for in order to be comfortable, in order not to have to worry about money going forward and not have selling be a silly thing to do. And so that's kind of what we set out to try and figure out is, all right, well, what is that number? We were making great money. We were saving a little bit more than 50% of what we were earning each year and genuinely living a pretty amazing life, splitting time between Bali and Costa Rica and the U.S. and traveling around Europe and all these different things that we've been doing. And so... The first question I think that we tried to answer is, do we need more than what we have right now? Do we need an extra 20% or an extra 10% more than what we're doing right now? Or are we pretty happy where we are? Do you mean from a cash flow perspective, would you be willing to take a hit in terms of your lifestyle? Well, yeah, it wasn't even that question. Or even if we'd want to grow it. Yeah. Do we want it to go up? Because if we'd kept running the business, we would kept growing the business. And then it's like, well, do I need to have a private jet? No, I, I don't need to have a private jet. We weren't jet. that close I, to that, but yeah. yeah. But <laughs> you could see down the horizon, maybe it would be there, right? It was this concept of, are we happy where we are? Do we need more? Or as you're saying, are we willing to take a hit? And so what we said is, no, we're pretty happy where we are. We don't really envision needing a lot more than what we have right now. So then the question is, what do we have right now? What are we spending right now? And so I think, Carrie, it was your idea to start running all of our personal finances through QuickBooks. So we set up a QuickBooks account. We went back two years, downloaded all the information from our credit cards, bank accounts, like all this kind of stuff, and started categorizing it. And I don't recommend this to anybody because it's an absolutely miserable <laughs> experience. <laughs> what surprised you about it? Well, I don't know if anything really surprised me about it, 
but all of a sudden you start to see where your money's going in a much more granular way. We eat out a lot. And I think we both knew we eat out a lot. And then you see the amount of money you spend on eating out. And you're like, wow, we spend a lot of money eating out, right? (laughs) Or uh, we own a home and seeing how much money you spend on a home is shocking. Truly, truly shocking. So, you know, those are some of the things. And then what we did is we took what we were spending and we went through it sort of the way you would if you were running a P&L for a business. And we said, all right, what in here is a one-time expense? How do you modify this so you get the actual number that you need going forward? And so we got a number of, okay, this is how much money we think we need every year going forward. And then we started trying to figure out, okay, well, how much money do you need to get that amount of money out each year? And that's where things start getting a little hazy. There's no exact science to it. It's more of an art form. And you know, I can go into that in more detail if you want. Yeah, definitely. So <laughs> thinking of it the way you would a business, you have the P&L and you have the balance sheet. Can you explain the difference? Sure. A balance sheet is a list of all of your assets and you subtract out all of your liabilities. So that's kind of how you get to your net worth, right? For a business, it would be how you get to your equity value of the business. The P&L is more the monthly transactions, right? How much money you have coming in, how much money you have going out, and what, if anything, is left over at the end of the day or end of the year. Kind of what you're saying is like a cash pile versus cash flow a little bit. Because when you sell a business, you sort of mindset going from a P&L mindset to a balance sheet mindset in a way where it's like, now we're just looking at this big old pile that I'm going to have to start chipping away at. What do you do with that pile? And you start having to figure out, well, how do you turn a pile of cash into cash flow? Right. Right, Which is currently what you're doing. (laughs) Which is the... So a lot of the information out there is for having this pile of cash, like the balance sheet method. And you have things like the 4% rule. You can take 4% of that pile of cash out each year, and that's how much money you can spend. Did you think that that methodology was sound for your purposes? Yes and no. I think the 4% rule is for a 30-year time horizon. Knock on wood, I'll live longer than 30 years. We talked to some financial planners about this, and most of them were saying we should use a lower drawdown threshold between about 2.7 and 3.3 is where people were ending up. So that's kind of the way the balance sheet method works. Then I'm a recovering banker, so I like to play with spreadsheets. And uh, I went in and built out a model that had all of our expenses annualized and then started choosing the assumptions, you know, what's inflation going to be? Is the stock market going to return? And then you plug your pile of money into it and you just run it down over the years and you see, all right, well, when I'm 105, is there any money left over or not? And you can play with that. And there's different Monte Carlo simulations you can run. You know, Vanguard has one on their website that you can use, things like that. So we kind of put it together both ways. And then The question we kept asking ourselves is, well, are these assumptions right? Can you make a life-changing decision based on assumptions that you pulled off the internet? 
The answer is clearly yes, you can. <laughs> so what we decided to do is to have somebody else double check our P&L assumptions. We even basically said to them, we're not going to give you our spreadsheet. We want to give you like some raw data to just see if they thought about it totally differently because we were very afraid of leading the witness, right? We didn't want to be like, this is what we think. Do you agree? Because then they're like, oh yeah, that roughly makes sense. Instead, we wanted to say, if you were trying to think this through, how would you think about it? And then afterwards, they gave us their feedback. So we tried really hard to say, let's look for blind spots anywhere we can on things we might not be thinking about. So you were shopping your proto-retirement to financial planners to see about your blind spots. What did they say? What's the consensus? Did you have any? Well, it was interesting. Everyone said different things. <laughs> what we did is we chose three different financial planners that we found on Upwork, and we just hired them for like a one-off project to review our financial statements, you know, look at our personal balance sheet and P&L, and tell us how much money we would need to be able to retire within the next two or three years, I think is how we phrased it to them. And they all plugged it into their own models and ran it all in different ways and everything. And yeah, th they sort of came back with different numbers. And then we questioned their numbers, interrogated them a little bit on their assumptions, reworked our model based on how they chose their assumptions and what they did. And then we said, okay, well, this is what we're comfortable with as far as a level of risk and success rate metric. Because what they do is they tell you, if you spend $100 a year, you're going to have a 70% chance of that money making it until you're 105. But if you spend $80 a year, then that goes up to a 92% chance of making it till you're 105, right? So it depends on how much money you're drawing down off that pile of cash each year. And so eventually we came up with a net worth number that we thought we needed to have in order to sell the business and not be worried about money going forward. And I think it's important, though, that we didn't want to work afterwards. We didn't want to have to, but we expected that we would. So you really have to talk yourself out of trying to incorporate that when you're thinking about it. Because when we use the word retirement, we're both like, well, neither of us wants to not do anything after this. You just don't want to have to do anything specifically. So you don't want to sell and then immediately think, where's my next gig coming from? Or what am I going to do next? You want the like kind of optionality around it. And so I think having external people look at all of that and give you their views allows you to kind of get out of your own head and not talk yourself into a number as opposed to start with something that is unbiased. Is it fair to say that what you guys have arrived at is a 3% rule? Are there, is there something that I'm missing? Pretty much, yeah. I think it was 2.85%. Yeah. Got it. How did you approach the sales process? Let's start there. So you get the number from the financial planners and you guys kind of look to each other and you're like, cool, let's put them in the fridge. We said, let's just write it down, stick it on the fridge and not do anything with it, which is sort of a weird strategy. Like when the time is right, we'll do something with it. And this is an eight-figure number. There are some zeros behind this number. It's an eight-figure <laughs> number. <laughs> and, and then we just said, we'll just start taking calls. So at that point, we would get emails all the time about selling. And because of the fact that we didn't want to, we never returned any of those calls, which in retrospect was like a completely foolish thing to do. All we literally did different is when people approached us, started calling them back. 
that was almost the only shift in strategy, which we thought it was going to be a lot harder than that, right? I was prepared with the idea that you'd have this number, you'd stick it on the fridge, and like five years later, after hiring investment bankers and going out and pitching your wares and PowerPoint decks or whatever, that then it would happen. And it was literally more a matter of like, now you actually answer your emails and assume that these are potential real investors. What was the first phone call you guys had that was a bit different and that made you think it might be an opportunity to sell? We had a phone call with kind of a big player in the industry because we just thought might as well make sense to sort of speak to them. And that seemed pretty promising. And honestly, I think that's where if we didn't have the number on the fridge, we would have been like, this is great. Let's go ahead and do this because it felt like a right fit in a lot of ways. But that was kind of the first real offer. When you put that number on the fridge, did it feel reachy and ridiculous? Or was it like, yeah, someday we'll get there? Well, we would have gotten there just from cash flow after a couple of years anyway. So it was more, we're going to get that number at some point. But if somebody wants to give it to us sooner, fantastic. I think that was more the thinking. I think if anything, it also kind of was freeing because I was the one who was running it day to day at that point and Dave was running clear and I just was ready to do something else. And so I liked the idea of having like, this is very clearly what good looks like. And I think actually not having it would have made us think that it was much higher as opposed to much lower. You know what I mean? I actually think it just created really, really good clarity. And then you can make the decision. I like that. Tell me about the transaction process and how that went down and maybe some things you do differently. So we had an interesting situation in that the first people that approached us were searchers, right? So who we ended up selling to, like the first contact from that group was a searcher. And they approached us and they said, all the right things. And it almost went so smoothly that we didn't even talk about it very much. And then, and I remember this exactly. We were in New York City. The kids were doing this Greek camp. We had one offer already that we weren't happy with the numbers, but kind of thought maybe we would negotiate it up a little bit from the bigger company. And out of nowhere, and it wasn't out of nowhere, we'd given them numbers, all that. We literally just get this LOI that has the number we want on the paper and the ter- and like close to the terms we wanted. And we we did not expect that at all. Like we weren't waiting for that. I don't even think we knew when that was meant to come in. We just didn't have that on our radar at all. Well, we didn't think that they were going to be viable acquirers. The two guys I spoke to were very smart guys. I think they were both Stanford MBA graduates, but they weren't U.S. people. They were from overseas. And yeah, the U.S. tax code is very confusing. So I was like, yeah, I don't know if this is going to be a good option for you guys if you don't know that much about the industry because it's going to be difficult to get up that learning curve. So we kind of wrote them off thinking they're probably not going to come back with anything. And then here we are walking around New York City one day and uh, we get an email in with a uh, LOI attached and we were kind of (laughs) like, wow, okay, that hits a lot of the boxes we wanted to hit. How did you have confidence that they had the capital to back up their letter? Well, we didn't really. So that's why we probably didn't take it that seriously. So it was actually the first thing was the, what, IOI, indication of intent, something like that. And so we got this document. We were like, oh, that's pretty good. And then we we said, okay, well, let's just negotiate this a little. Like, let's try to figure out if we can get to exactly the terms we wanted. Because the thing that people often forget, and we should probably talk about this a little bit, is there's a number that you want, but the terms are as important as the number, right? So we had offers that were higher where a lot of it was held up 
they like you weren't getting all the cash up front or like it was really important to me to not have to run the business for a couple of years under someone else. Like there were, you know, a number of terms that were total deal breakers for us and that we just kind of knew we wanted. It's also worth mentioning that those terms are like a strategy for a lot of acquirers. It's like it doesn't cost you anything to put a lowball offer in on a house. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cost you anything to write to 2,500 companies and offer a seller finance deal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And I think it was good that we didn't feel desperate at all. We thought this was going to take years, right? And so we just asked for exactly what we wanted. I mean, I'm not saying we got every single thing that we wanted, but the main things, right? Like me not running it for a couple of years, like while it gets phased out, getting the cash up front as opposed to like over time was important. And then ironically, once we went through the entire process, and I can explain who we ended up selling to in the end, but once we went through the process, then later on, we had the opportunity to keep a little bit more equity in the company. And we decided to because we felt so confident in them and the business and all that. So if they had forced us at the beginning, we would have said no and walked away. And then at the end, when it became, we actually said, you know what? Actually, we'd actually like to keep a little bit of equity. Now it's a bonus because you know about their whole project and why don't I Yeah, then we felt good about it all. So basically, we signed this um, LOI with these kind of searchers in, what, September or so? And the, the process was meant to take from September till the end of the year. And we literally were like, I don't think this is going to happen. Like, we still, I mean, I don't even think we mentioned it to people. Like, it was just sort of like, I haven't, you know, this doesn't feel very real. Mentally, we told ourselves that this is just a dry run. It's a practice. Yeah. It's like, I don't think this is going to go through. But if we take a swing and we go through the process a little bit and see how it all works, it'll be educational for the next time somebody comes along. But at this point, just for people who've never sold a business, they know everything about your business, right? They've looked at all your information. They've interviewed maybe even some top team members. I mean, no, not that far yet. This is before the diligence really uh, kicked off. They've reviewed a couple of years of financial statements, the website, that kind of thing. But they haven't gone super in-depth. No attorneys have been hired yet or anything like that. Well, we hired an attorney to look at the LOI and kind of all the terms and stuff. And we did sign confidentiality agreements. But the one thing we did negotiate up front, because we were really nervous about this, is for them to speak to team members at the very end of the process, as opposed to at the beginning. Because to me, it seemed incredibly risky, right? Like they go and start talking to people at the beginning. And then if something doesn't work out, I've got a whole bunch of like really frazzled, stressed out team members that are worried about what's going to happen. Yeah. If that, and then how do you repair that? So I felt confident in the people that we ended up selling to. And so I felt like once they met them and then it happened quickly, it would be okay. But if it had, like if they had had that conversation at the beginning, that had fallen apart, they literally would have been like, oh my gosh, who's going to be the new owner? Like they would have been thinking about that for the next couple of years if that's how long it took. Did you have any team members involved in the process of pulling the information, like the info financial data or anything? No. So actually, I think we had a really nice, lucky situation. I don't know if anyone else can replicate this, but because I was running the business day to day and Dave wasn't too busy on clear, like he was able to take some time to do this. He basically ran all the data room stuff. I was still actually incredibly busy with some of the acquisition stuff and running the team running the business, I can't even imagine how someone does it if they're trying to do both. But just go back and kind of finish the story. We signed this LOI. This was with lawyers and numbers, and we negotiated that in September. And Dave and I had this conversation. We literally were in Connecticut and about to go to Bali. And we're like, should we go to Bali? Like when we're about to sell, like, shouldn't we be in the same time zone? And then we're like, 
I don't actually think this is going to work out. This doesn't feel real. So we got on a plane to Bali and we were there for the rest of the year. And so we would do calls really, really early in the morning and then pull together all the data they wanted that day, get it to them at night and then get more questions the next morning. So it was like this kind of very luckily, really, really efficient process because we were sort of doing like 24 time zone working. And what happened is that the searchers went to the private equity firm that they intended to get some funding from. And I know exactly the conversation, but they said, we'll take over that deal. So we ended up actually selling to somebody very different than who we originally spoke with that I think worked out phenomenally well because you could see that they had the funding, they knew exactly what they were looking for, all of those things. Were there certain things that they cared about, liked or didn't like that surprised you? Because sometimes there's certain things that founders see a business and we're like, oh, team's really great. Margins are really bad. And then someone else comes in and sees completely different things. So what is it that they, they liked or disliked about your business? Maybe this doesn't exactly answer your question, but the part that was the trickiest of all of it was some of the legal part because lawyers are you know, so risk averse, right? And so we literally had lawyers combing through things where we had probably two weeks where we thought the entire thing was going to fall apart because there was one sentence in one of our terms and conditions where like the comma and the period made a huge difference in meaning, right? And every lawyer was going through it. And Dave and I are sitting there, we're literally spending thousands of dollars on lawyers to have this conversation. This is the most silly thing on earth. And so there was a lot of things that were sort of more in that category of like, this is important, like this you're stuck on. We had a joke that they were, you know, the questions were like, what color socks were you wearing on June 1st, 2017? And we were like, I don't know, you know, like it was so much diligence. So there was nothing they didn't look into. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, at a certain point, you wonder, like the more they see, they're going to feel less or more impressed, you know, that they're going to. They just keep asking questions. They've already given you the LOI for a certain number. There's always a thought in my head because I think a lot of buyers do and genuinely do this. Maybe not more serious ones at higher numbers, but certainly at lower numbers, you see a lot of LOIs go out and then they just start to chip away at you. Oh, well, you wore yellow socks that day, Carrie. We're going to have to take off X percentage. Was there any of that kind of stuff going on? No, I'd heard that so much that we were expecting that. We were nervous about it. We were expecting that at some point they were going to come and say, well, based on all of this, we're going to lower a number at the last minute because that's what we'd heard people say. And also the person that we worked with, the team that we worked with was like a really pleasant, like it was just all a really sort of collaborative, pleasant experience. And like in a way, Dave and I were joking, we're like, we kind of feel like they're tricking us because at the last minute they're going to be like, we were just pretending to be really nice and now we're going to do something. And that never happened. Like we had a really phenomenal experience overall that was so different than what we were afraid of. So no, we didn't have anything where sort of in the final hours, there was some bait and switch type thing, even though we were probably more on high alert than we were on very high alert because we'd heard so many experiences, even though the experience we were having did not feel like it was going that way. It's, I think it's just so common. I'm curious as to how you felt when some money hit some bank account somewhere, but could we get anticipate that moment a little bit by how do you hand someone else a business? What are the mechanics of it? Well, first you negotiate about a thousand pages of legal documents <laughs> for like six weeks. <laughs> Go ahead, Kara. I was making yeah, a joke. I mean, I had things running 
SOPs, team, EOS, like everything was really buttoned up. And that wasn't because of selling. It just was sort of the way that I like to run things. And so I think if it were less that, it would probably be harder to hand over. But I had like a playbook for how to run this business that had been running for years and years in a certain way, iterated through lots of stuff. So I actually had lots of data, lots of metrics, all of that kind of stuff. So I actually think if you want to hand it over easily, you do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you have it really clean. It also was really important to me not to run it after the acquisition. I just thought right. I would absolutely hate the idea of working for somebody else. I just didn't think I was capable <laughs> of that. Like working for someone else for some sustained period of time. I felt like it would be really awkward, the sort of too many cooks type thing. So I actually left pretty quickly. I only worked for a couple of weeks and then did consulting for many, many months. The whole team stayed in place, every single person. There was like not a single change. So it actually wasn't honestly all that difficult. I was expecting that to be, there to be a lot of friction with that. And in our particular case, there wasn't. Do you just give them your routing number and bank account number? And do you give them the login to your web host? Or what are the mechanics of those sorts of things? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but it was like a specific <laughs> day and spreadsheets and money had to go after certain logins. Like it was very carefully coordinated by lawyers. But the way that the documents get signed in the end is like you do all of this work and then like the lawyers just kind of send you a note like, because you send something in advance saying that you sign papers saying like when this is done, they kind of exchange all of the signatures. And so in the end, it's sort of like, one email where your lawyer writes the other lawyer and says like, this is all done. And you're like, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever that this is the moment. And yet it was. That was what was really weird. So instead of holding all the money in escrow and like the passwords to the website and, you know, all the systems in escrow, they get you to sign the signature docs like a week before the closing. And the attorneys hold those in escrow. And I guess they compare notes. It's like, I got mine. You got yours? It's like, yep. So the lawyers have like a duel in a boardroom somewhere. And so no escrow required for the actual funds itself. Yeah. And so when we gave the green light and they gave the green light, you know, it's like they're passing them over. You know, each side grabs the other side. And, you know, the person at the private equity company called us up and said, I just, I'm about to hit send. I want to confirm one last time because I don't want to get the numbers wrong. We're like, hold on, let me log into online banking and make sure the numbers are right. And so, you know, you go in, you double check all the numbers and he hits send. And then you spend the next couple hours sitting there hitting refresh on your bank statement <laughs> you know, and your online banking to make sure the money hits. And uh, then we went out and had a couple margaritas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What did it feel like to make, have your refrigerator look like your online bank account? I think it was a very emotional thing, right? It was like, wait a second, did that just happen? Did we screw something up? Did we forget some major part of this? But I think if we had had a bad, a really bad negotiation process, like really didn't trust the partner, it would have felt awful. So I think sometimes people walk away from these things and don't feel good about who they sold to in the end. Whereas we actually had a pretty pleasant experience. I really liked who we worked with. They were just very kind and just almost the opposite of what you would expect from <laughs> that situation. And so I think we felt pretty good about it. Yeah, I don't know. There's definitely a lot of emotion around it. I think in some ways... It was a really nice moment to look back on what you've built over that entire time. I mean, it was a really emotional thing, right? We literally, we were leaving London in 2008. 
And we sat down and we wrote, you've heard this story before, but we've sat down and wrote 100 business ideas of like, all right, what do we want to do next, right? Like we, you know, it was like, won't choose one until we get to 100. And it had ridiculous things on there. Like it had building an entire snow cone business out of like the beaches in Brazil and franchising it. It had, I mean, it had just like... Great idea. Yeah, maybe that's what we'll do next, actually. Like, <laughs> but it had just so many things on there. We were trying so hard to come up with something. And we had a lot of criteria around it. And when we then went out and said, this is what we want to do, we had this view of what success would look like. And success at the time was like, you know, the number was this compared to sort of where we ended up, you know, being able to go. So it was a very small number compared to where we ended. And we just had this idea, like at the time, that all we wanted was sort of to get out of the London lifestyle. We didn't have ambitions to create this lifestyle where you could have three kids doing amazing travel all over the world. And so being able to like take nothing and turn it into something that then builds a lifestyle that you want for the rest of your life is a really emotional thing. And it was, it felt really good. And I would say mostly panic because, you know, the money was just <laughs> sitting in a checking account, not earning anything. Yeah. We're like, what if our bank accounts get hacked into? Oh my God. <laughs> We're in a fixed income now, you know, <laughs> Carrie lost her job. Yes. <laughs> Can you guys talk a little bit about the genesis of Clear? Because I think that it must give you confidence that you still own a cash-flowing, successful business. Can you give us a little sense for the scale of it? Something that I've seen so many of our members start to do is they lay a golden egg somehow along the way, and then they're able to, to jump onto that vine while they exit the first business. At least seems like on the surface that that's what you've done. You've use your experience at Greenback to start this other business or a contact or an experience, bam, it gets up to speed. And now all of a sudden, well, we can sell the first one. We can have a cash pile and a cash flow. And I said this on the podcast a few times, I called it split and sell. And I know you guys didn't do it. There's some nuances here, but rather than lumping in like clear as a division, I'll just split it off as a new thing. And then I'll sell the golden goose or I'll sell the egg, one or the other. And I got a, a handful of emails from members that are like, one in particular was like, I can't mention this publicly, but look, I did this. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. And there's a lot of this going on. <laughs> so I'm curious if you could just think about that as a framework and how does Clear and Greenback apply or not apply to that, that basic strategy? The opportunity to start Clear actually came out of DCBKK. You know, I gave a two-minute talk about this uh, this year at the conference, but basically... There was a speaker on stage. He asked to be pitched while he was on stage. I raised my hand, tried to pitch him. Uh, it was a horrible pitch, crashed and burned. I was <laughs> the example of what not to do in front of you know, 350 conference attendees at DCBKK, which felt wonderful, as you can imagine. <laughs> but what happened was a couple months later, he sent me an email and said, hey, can we jump on a phone call? He said, I might have a business opportunity for you if you're interested. And he explained that he was working for this company that was incorporating a lot of clients. These clients had special needs for their taxes. Would I be interested in doing corporate tax work as one of their partners? Now, the interesting thing was I kind of knew how to do this already, right? Because of starting Greenback, I knew, okay, you, know, you can set up on this platform, you buy this tax software, you can hire accountants here, like all these different things. So I was just at a more advanced stage in order to get it going, right? 
because this phone call happened in November, end of November, something like that. So there was not a lot of time to get it going before the next tax season started in January. So the idea you pitched him, to be clear, was completely different. Like you were pitching him the ice cream cones in Brazil thing. (laughs) I pitched him for our expat tax business. And then six weeks later, he uh, calls me and says, hey, you know, I know you do taxes. Are you interested in doing this kind of tax work? Yeah. So I said yes. Over the course of the weekend, I threw together a website and a very simple back end for the business. And January 1st, they launched us out to their client base. And I think we got a thousand clients that first year. At the time, it was fairly simple tax returns because a lot of these companies had just incorporated. So they didn't have a lot going on. And we incubated it inside the expat business for about the first year because we didn't know if it was going to work or not. And it didn't make sense to open new bank accounts and knew this and knew that if we didn't know if it had legs or not. But probably eight months after that phone call, we spun it out as its own corporate entity and opened up all the bank accounts and did all that stuff for it. Why? Well, it was, we thought it had legs and it was a different enough business from the expat one that it didn't overlap very well. You wouldn't use the same website. You know, it'd be trying to sell two very different products on the same site. And then that's going to hurt your conversion. It's going to impact which kind of traffic you're going for and all these different things, right? Yeah. What we decided was it was much better to stay very niche with the expat business and just focus on that expat niche and spin this out as its own separate business that I could run when I had time to run it. The reason I underline this is because This happens all the time in our business over the last 15 years, but I won't make a new corporation. I'll just make a new website and keep a lot of dotting along. I mean, we discovered this multiple times just with Dynamite Jobs. Like, hey, uh, you know, this type of customer wants a completely different product than this type of customer. And so we make a new website, a new landing page, and we keep going along. I'm curious as to when the moment is that you decide... Because this is the sort of thing that if you don't build an incorporation, you keep it in greenback the whole time, that could just get lumped into this deal. And it's a division of people focused on a different client set. Well, we weren't running it together at all. So I was running the expat business and Dave was running clear. And so there, there weren't shared team members. Like we really didn't want there to be any overlap. So if we'd been willing to have shared team members, right? Like a marketing manager that was doing... 50% clear, 50% green back. And like, if we wanted to do that, it might've made more sense. But the incorporation wasn't the hardest part of all of that. There wasn't any other yeah. overlap. Like when you say you incubated inside a greenback, I don't even know if anybody in greenback knew that was happening. It was just that you didn't set up a corporate entity at the time. That was the only difference. There weren't the same accountants. There weren't the same, there wasn't the same anything. Yeah, I think we used the expat Stripe account and we used we sort of commandeered one of the accountants and said, for the next couple of months, you're just going to do this work over here. Yeah. And then I was like, I want that person back. (laughs) 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 But again, the service we were offering was very, very different. One is wine, one is milk, you know? It's not that you're doing hiring for different companies. The tax work, like even the skills the accountants needed to have didn't overlap that well. Because on the one hand, you're dealing mainly with personal stuff. And on the other hand, you're dealing mainly with corporate stuff. It came up during the sales process also where 
the private equity company was like, well, if you have this other company, how do we know you're not going to steal all the clients? And you know, just try and funnel them into that company. And it's like, no, the work we do is 180 degrees apart. So, you know, we have things written into the contract about how many personal returns Clear can do and stuff like that. And I don't, I think in the last three years, I don't think we've done any regular 1040 tax work at all. Whereas that's the bread and butter of the expat business. Makes sense. What is your general perspective about raising children as wealthy people? There's a lot of anxieties that parents have that their kids aren't going to think about money the same way that you thought of it. And that's something that's really valuable to you. Writing that number, putting it on the fridge, achieving it, like working hard for many years to get there. So what is your current thinking about how that pertains to the family? Well, we have no ambition to kind of leave the kids with money. We don't think that's good for people necessarily. So we don't have this desire to set somebody up for the rest of their life. It's all about giving them incredible educational experiences. So if you look at our budget, there's a huge chunk of our budget on making sure that that is something that is never something we have to say no to because it's unaffordable. But I don't think any of the kids expect that we're going to pay any of their way through things. And I don't think we treat them like that on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, there are things like as soon as we sold the business, then we went on safari, right? And that's an expensive thing to do, right? So like you kind of know that some of those things are going to be ones that maybe that's what they think their vacation should look like when they graduate from college. So we do worry about that a little bit. Dave, what do you think? I think they're old enough to have seen how much we were working on this business. So I don't think they have the impression that it came easy or anything like that. They've been at the table listening to us talk about work and business and problems pretty much their entire lives. So I think they have a sense of what it takes to get there. I don't think that they're going to be like entitled or spoiled. And I'm also pretty good at saying no. So uh, when they ask for that new car when they turn 16, that's an easy one to say no to, you know? It's like get a new pair of uh, Nikes the way I did when I turned 16, right? (laughs) I think it's worth asking you guys because it's been an incredible accomplishment of yours. And I know, Carrie, we did a whole episode about it, so we'll reference that as well. But maybe you could flag up some of the things you guys are currently doing and how your thinking is evolving in in terms of raising a family, independent free thinkers and entrepreneurial kids. A lot of members of the DC, they want to impart entrepreneurial wisdom onto their kids and they're looking for ways to do that. It's changing a lot over the last couple of years. One of the things that is the most interesting and kind of fun and fascinating is like you're trying to learn how to educate and how to raise kids who love learning while they're also evolving at the same time, right? So they're like kind of growing up faster than you can keep up in terms of what it is (laughs) that they need. And we've got three different kids that couldn't, they they look very similar and they couldn't possibly have more different personalities, right? So I think for us, it's really just about being really open minded around things. So just trying to make sure that you're, you know, I kind of joke that like, I feel like I'm fairly irreverent around following any rules around conventional education. It's like, look for the best possible opportunities for that particular kid in terms of what they're interested in at that particular time. And so there's a lot of time spent on sort of scanning the room and being like, all right, you're really interested in this. Let's help you find a way to get more entrenched in that. I think one thing we've tried to be really careful of is not having any expectation that 
they will be interested in the same things that we are. Neither of us expects that any of the kids will necessarily want to do the same things that we're doing. Our oldest does want to do a lot of the same things, right? So he's very entrepreneurial mindset, but in totally different ways. So we taught him to have that entrepreneurial mindset. But what he's interested in is things that we don't even understand, right? He's really into coding. I mean, he helps us set up our computers. Like we did not impart that on him in any way. Whereas then our middle guy, 11-year-old, is incredibly interested in rocket science. And he's taking all these really high-level science and math courses. And we don't know anything about this stuff. So I think it's much more around sort of kind of choreographing the right experiences and trying to make sure that there's as much immersion as you can possibly find. Like, all right, you're interested in this. Like, I'm going to give you the opportunity to go seek out more of that versus like trying to chart a path for them on your own. It's like, listening to what they're saying, asking them questions about it, having them feel really comfortable asking for classes or tutors or just more of any particular thing and doing it really differently per kid and knowing that each year it's going to change a little bit because they're getting older and their interests are going to change. So it's sort of just a constant reshifting of what are the best educational opportunities. Sounds like adapting to what motivates them as individuals versus forcing them into any particular best practice? Yeah. In general, though, there tends to be a couple of themes. So working inside of a particular school system full-time just hasn't really worked for any of the three kids. Because if you're inside of like a very specific rigid infrastructure, you sort of have to do things their way, right? Like you have to do that exactly that way. And so often that means that if you're particularly ahead on a subject, like if you're really interested in one thing, you still have to work within that class's knowledge set. Our oldest son, when he was at school a couple of years ago, he had a class that was so easy for him that he was literally, and it was a very, very good school. You know, he was literally like, the teacher was like, I think he just needs to bring a book. I mean, you know what I mean? Like he just has to bring a book during class. Whereas equally, then there's other subjects that are like, well, I'm not sure how great that is for him as he used the time. And then other subjects where you need more, kids are feeling like, oh, I'm behind. And so I also think the pace is really important. So letting kids learn at their own pace for who they are is incredibly important. And schools don't accommodate that. You could have honors classes within a specific class and really good schools. But in general, they don't accommodate the idea that you could have an 11-year-old that is doing math at a 17-year-old level and English at a nine-year-old level. And they just don't accommodate that kind of thinking. And so that builds a lot of confidence for kids to go at the pace that they are ready to go at in whatever it is they're interested in do. I love that. I think that's a great way to end it. (laughs) Guys, we appreciate all you've done for the show and for the community over the years. And congratulations on the incredible exit. And we all look forward to seeing what you do next. Awesome. Thank you very much, Dan. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.